Hey everyone, welcome to a special edition of the Goody Reader Radio Show. My name is Michael and I'm joined today by Mercy Pilkington, fresh out of New York, who went to the Digital Book World Conference. Mercy, how are you? Doing great, how are you? Not too bad. So, first of all, for people who haven't heard of Digital Book World before, what was it all about? Okay, this was the fifth staging of the annual Digital Book World Conference and Expo. Um, in recent years, it has come really great. It's come right off the holiday season, so it was really a good way to fresh, you know, start the year fresh in, in publishing industry news. Um, it used to be followed up right afterward in February with the O'Reilly Media Tools of Change Conference. And O'Reilly Media actually was present at this year's DBW um, because they're not going to be hosting Tools of Change anymore. So right off the bat, Tim Riley, um, the CEO, founder, said, um, you know, we've, we've done our task. Our task was to bring publishers on board with digital and make them see the reason for it. We've done that and we're ready to move on and, and turn that, that focus into something new. So Digital Book World has really stepped up and kind of become the premier, you know, wintertime focus for publishing, but it's one of the few North American conferences that focuses strictly on digital publishing. And so every year there's a lot of great speakers. I think this year there were 240 different speakers, a um, lot of industry news coming out. It's always a great launching pad for studies and data, um, but really interesting data, not the dry kind, you know? So yeah. lots of lots of great news comes out of digital book world every year. So it's a conference that specializes in, you know, anybody who's involved in digital publishing, enhanced ebooks, kids ebooks. Uh, they're all represented there, and there's uh, a lot of sessions. What were the themes this year? Because I was at CES, uh, the Consumer Electronics Show, and I mean, um, like 12,000 booths, uh, about 175,000 people were there. There was two themes: uh, curved TVs and uh, wearable tech, so smartphone, mm -hmm. uh, smart watches, and things like that. Usually, with these conferences, there's um, a theme. Well, did you notice any type of particular theme this year, at DBW? One of the things I see at DBW is is less a major organized theme and more like these buzzwords. You know that the one topic everybody's talking about. And last year, I remember DBW was actually where the term hybrid author or hybrid publisher was introduced. Um, Hugh Howie and his agent Kristen Nelson, you know, took the stage. It was a standing room only event. You know, as they're talking about what it means to be traditionally published and self published, and we're still using that term to this day. This year, it really felt like that some of the buzzwords were marketing discovery, so that's a huge focus now. And, and of course, knowing that DBW is a little more slanted towards the traditional industry than, say, the self-published or indie press industry, even traditional publishers are struggling under the glut of books, of ebooks out there. And so marketing and discovery were huge. But really, everybody was talking about subscription-based reading. Um, there was a lot of discussion of direct-to-consumer, and we can talk about that in a second. But again, a lot of standing room-only presentations and panels on subscription reading. Of course, now that Oyster and Scribd have both launched really viable models and have gotten a lot of titles and a lot of publishers on board, where you know the first time Good E-Reader covered subscription reading was back in 2010 yeah. when we interviewed Justo Hidalgo from 24 Symbols out of Spain. 
Um, that was actually the first time we covered subscription reading and this Netflix all-you-can-eat kind of thing. Um, and it's taken this long for it really to become a viable model. And even there, we saw just as many panels saying, folks, it's not going to work and talk about why. So, uh, so there were a lot of buzzwords coming out of this year's event, you know, focusing on those three topics. Okay, so you've heard a lot of people talk about ebooks, subscription services, mm -hmm. and you know, obviously, aside from the conferences, you know, you were interviewing uh, many prominent figures in, in the mm -hmm. publishing world. What is your take on ebook subscription sites as they stand right now? Is it a viable model? Is it something that you know, as a young startup looking for my first project, is an ebook subscription site? something I should be doing. What are your, what's your impressions of ebook subscription sites as they stand right now? Well, first of all, if you're a startup and you're thinking you're going to be a subscription model, I would tell you to run for the hills. Yep. Um, first of all, because we've got two companies that it looks like everybody's throwing their support to. Uh, Smashwords has signed agreements with both Oyster and Scribd. Major publishers are signing with both of those. Um, so basically, it's like waking up one day and saying, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to start up a, a company that does online streaming of movies. <laughs> you know, why would you do that? Why would you compete with Netflix and Hulu and things like that? Um, so yeah, this is not the time to be an ebook subscription startup unless uh. you are completely different. But um, the thing is, all this time, what has really taken the industry this long to actually adopt ebook subscriptions is we cannot get the numbers right. How do the publishers and the authors get paid? And we saw an article this week, uh, the National Library of Norway basically said, you know what, we can't figure it out either. Forget it. We're just going to pay. We're just going to pay the authors per page, publishers, rights holders, whomever. And so that's basically just a national project funded by the government of Norway. We don't have that option here in the U.S. and in North America. And so basically um, what we saw was a lot of people promoting ebook subscriptions. We are finding more and more publishers who are coming on board with it. They're still being cautious. They're putting out their backlist and their midlist. Maybe you know one or two best-selling titles just to keep the interest going. But we're not really seeing publishers jump on board and say, yes, we think this will work. In fact, unfortunately, the opposite happened. We had two prominent figures. We had Dominique Rocca, the amazing Dynamo founder and publisher at Sourcebooks. And then we had Tim O'Reilly of O'Reilly Media. Both of them sat down with me and talked to me about ebook subscriptions and said, what's holding things back? Now, if you look at Tim O'Reilly, he owns Safari Books, which is a subscription. And all along, he has said the math is just not there. We don't have the support of the publishers because we have not been able to convince them how they're going to get paid. One thing he did tell me is that at least this is true for Safari Books, is that the average subscription for his company, his platform, if someone reads one book that month, their entire subscription price goes to that publisher. So let's say I pay $9.99 a month, I read one book, the entire revenue minus the portion that the platform takes goes to the publisher. If I read 100 books, they're all going to share 1%. Again, that's not a viable model. You no. cannot tell a publisher they're going to get 1% of $9.99 because I read their book. It's almost the, like, um, you know... I, I guess the way that video and music works is a lot of it is it's like licensing fees. So Netflix may pay, 
you know, um, CBS or they may pay like Fox or, you know, like um, News Corp. They may pay them like $150 million for like, you know, 10 movies like a year or something like mm -hmm. that. And they won't get any money from like the residuals. They'll just right. basically pay licensing fees. It almost seems like you know, um, you would need to pay licensing fees to the publishers. So instead of, um, you know, paying on a book by book basis, or right. I know some subscription services are like, you know, if you read 25 pages, you know, this many cents a page yeah. goes to the publisher. It's just so convoluted. I, you know, if, right. if say I had a Netflix for e-textbooks, I'd go to McGraw Hill and be like, give me your entire library. I'll give you $250,000 for like six months of unlimited use. And mm -hmm. I'm sure that they would do it because that, that would be revenue that they wouldn't be able to have otherwise. And it would make sense that for them to give me their entire front list catalog because I'm giving them like a licensing fee, basically. I, I, mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't understand why ebook subscription sites don't borrow a page from like what spot well you know spotify does things differently and and you know all these services do things differently there really isn't like a universal standard on how to do business on a subscription site which is why most of them end up never working or right. or get so unprofitable that they're just unless they're getting you know, venture capital on a regular basis, they're going to go out of business immediately because it's their business model is not sustainable. Um, right. I would say that, you know, a lot of um, subscription sites were looking at their early infancy and I, a lot of people send me emails saying, you know, uh, what, you know, I love Netflix for videos. What should <laughs> I do for eBooks? And I'm like, don't do anything because it's not right. worth it. Um, because well, a lot the problem is we're looking at a comparison that's not genuine. Who sits in their recliner and sees a trailer on TV for the hot new action movie of the summer and goes, man, I can't wait till that thing comes to Netflix. I know. You know, they don't. They go out and they buy it and they watch it in the movie theater. They consume it at full price. The, the movie studio makes its money. The advertisers, the actors, everyone gets paid. And then it comes to Netflix. We don't have that kind of fire in ebooks. You will have people, you know, we saw them before, the people who lined up at midnight when the bookstores opened to get the new Harry Potter book or the new Catching Fire, you know, Hunger Games trilogy. That yeah. does happen. Those are rare. It's and those true. Are, those are big events. You know, nobody's sitting there going, man, I can't wait till the 17th. That book's coming out, you know. That's not hey, I'm like store. that sometimes. I'm like, <laughs> I can't wait to go to the bookstores on Tuesdays because it's new book day, you know? Right. But, you know, again, if that were true of all books, then, then this might be a, a sustainable model, you know, where we compare it to Netflix. Books and movies are not the same and consumers take them differently. And so even, even the music industry, we consume books differently than we do music and movies. And so we keep comparing it to this Netflix model. It's not the same thing. Now, one thing to, um, Tim O'Reilly did point out, in favor of ebook subscriptions, he said the traffic they've seen from subscriptions in terms of how many books that consumers actually consume through their subscription is fairly equal to if they had bought the book. We don't have that many people subscribing for $9 and reading 100 books a month. Those people are just not doing it. And so they are able to come up with the numbers that show that the typical subscription is is fairly similar. It's, it correlates in some way to as if the person had bought the book. So if they can prove that data and show that to publishers, we will get more publishers on board. Unfortunately, 
Dominique Rocca from Sourcebooks, somebody I adore. I'm absolutely her fangirl because she's just so innovative and so on the cusp of new things. She made a different point. With ebook lending from libraries coming along, why would I pay? Why would I subscribe for $9 a month, $9.99, to read somebody's backlist titles when I can get it for free from my library? And even if I have to wait a little bit, one thing that's been proven with library lending is if I'm on the waiting list to check out the ebook, I'm just going to go buy it. I'm going to go, you know what, forget this. You know, I'm, I'm, 40, I'm 14th in line. I'll just go get it because it's only $7.99 on Amazon. And so she's shown that that publishers actually benefit from ebook lending in libraries because the patrons are more likely to buy it either because they didn't want to wait or because they started it and didn't get to finish it and then the book disappears automatically and so they just go buy it to finish it or they loved it so much they're ready to get that sequel like you were the day the book comes out so they've got the solid data through the project with overdrive and sourcebooks to demonstrate that ebook lending really helps publishers or subscriptions it's still kind of up in the air and so why do it so libraries have come a long way um mm -hmm. i remember not even about a year and a half ago there was only one or two major publishers involved in distributing their books through libraries such as overdrive 3m uh, baker and taylor access 360. fast forward to today simon and schuster just announced a broader rollout of all their front list titles uh to be distributed through libraries so it seems as though every major publisher now is contributing most of their mid-list, back-list, but also most of them are doing front-list titles now uh, right. through the library. So it's, it's a great time for libraries because it's after a lot of hard work of lobbying from the American Library Association uh, through, you know, various like, you know, people who have led dig uh, like, um, del you know, delegates, you know, that have <laughs> Exactly. Non-stop in, in petitioning uh, these publishers to support libraries. All of them have finally come around, and it's been a long time in coming. But Simon and Schuster was the last holdout, and now they've committed to I think about thirty-one different libraries with 3M mm -hmm. and OverDrive now. One and, and I saw your article this week. They actually took it further. Not only will will you buy the will you read the book from the library, you can check it out. Then it turns around to where you can actually buy it through the library. That is so freaking brilliant. That is amazing. Because yeah. what they've done is they've addressed the other buzzword from DBW, which was direct to consumer. So those people are going to sell that book through that library. The library can have affiliate status through a retailer. You you get to buy a book you wanted while benefiting your public library. And and at the same time, or you can buy it directly from Simon and Schuster and skirt the retailer altogether. Simon and Schuster is going to pocket that 30% distribution fee. That was brilliant. I wish more publishers would take a lesson and get on board with lending. You think so? I do. I, it was absolutely brilliant. Libraries so. is retail mercy. I I don't see it. Li libraries are publicly funded. They're meant <laughs> they to be a resource for for all of the community. And most people mm -hmm. who use libraries, let's face it, they're not their pockets aren't overflowing with cash, right. which is right. why they're they're getting the books for free. And mm -hmm. if you take a publicly funded, you know, library, and then all mm -hmm. of a sudden you adopt the for-profit mentality, it, mm -hmm. you know, I could see a firestorm erupting, not now, but in a few years from now, as libraries start saying, you know, we're, make, we're selling like about eight or 900 books a month, you mm -hmm. know, 
we're we're making like a thousand plus dollars. Let's start promoting this. And then all of a sudden right. you're seeing books for sale, but buy two, get one free. And it's like yeah. all of a sudden libraries are like less of a public, even though that they're being sustained by public funds, they're yeah. going to embrace this for profit mentality. And, and as a public library, I, I, that scares me. It, it does. I, I think what will make that okay is the fact that the library model has been in place for hundreds of years. We, we know how to run a public library. But at the same time, if you really dig deep, you'll see that public libraries have al already been in the, in the retail business in some way. You Use can, book fairs and, you know, right, things like that. that. Too. But like my local library, they, they rebuilt it. It built a brand new library for our town. It's beautiful. And there's meeting space that you have to pay to rent. I can still check out books for free, but if I want to have a meeting there, heck, I know somebody who had a baby shower there. You can go rent the At space. The library? And that, yeah, exactly. That's because actually it's a beautiful, pretty awesome. I, it is. I know. I'd love to have, like, I, love, I want to get married again just so I can get married at the library. <laughs> anyway. Well, you, you know, people renew their vow, vow, vows, exactly. right? Exactly. That's what we'll do. My husband will be very confused about why we're standing in the reference section. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. But um, but basically, this is and you know this is another topic that's really come up. There was a whole panel on the future of libraries um, at, at this year's event, and libraries are having to reinvent themselves to stay relevant. And this is brilliant that they can do this. They've made it optional. I can still borrow that ebook if I'm somebody who wants to get a free book, and and you know patronize my local library. Or if I know I wanted to purchase it, instead of closing the door behind me at that library and going to a bookstore or going online, I can know that I'm supporting my library by buying that book. I would love to see big signs outside. Hey, if you're going to buy a book, we'll help you out and you'll help us out. I would love to see that happen to help make sure that libraries keep those doors open. If I'm a consumer paying for a book, I would love to give that money to them so they can make it possible to keep their doors open and provide free content to people in my town who can't pay for it. I think it's genius. And yeah, Simon see, Schuster, we, we totally kudos differ. to them. I, like, I hate it. I know. I, I, I hate know. The, I hate the fact that like, <laughs> yeah. in order for a library to carry Penguin and Simon and Schuster mm -hmm. books, it's mandated that you have to sell them online. It's like okay. it, libraries are being coerced. You know, well, it's like in order to carry you know the latest Stephen King book or mm -hmm. you know the you know by famous authors the types of authors that like sell a lot of books it's like you know we want to carry them but that means we have to sell them too I, I you know I don't know if we want to open up those can of worms but right. it's it's not the fact that libraries could optionally make money it's the fact that libraries are forced to sell ebooks in order to carry digital titles well no they're forced to make it available there's no quota, as far as I know, saying if you don't sell 15 copies of this per month, we're going to pull it off your shelves. Um, so they're 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 asked to make it available to keep this agreement, and of course they're also welcome to say no, we're not going to work with you. And you know, and then if that happens enough, Simon and Schuster will say maybe we should rethink this. I would far rather see an agreement like this in place than the current agreement. And I'm not faulting Random House. Random House charges a library 300% the retail price of the ebook. Yeah in order to know that they're going to make their money off of this because they can't give them a $5.99 ebook and let them loan it to every patron under the sun and not get their money back. And so, and believe it or not, I mean, it's easy to paint the publishers as the bad guys. And some of these news articles I read, 
yeah, I kind of wonder who made that decision in a board meeting. But they they also have bills to pay, just like the library. So I would love to see more mutual agreements that can help the publishers keep their costs down to provide books while helping a library keep their doors open. Yeah. We have, we have to look at the fact that, you know, those libraries, you're right, they're publicly funded. That's money my town could have used for something else. Well, and they're giving it to a library. I'd love to see libraries get more sustainable. One has to wonder how much the affiliate fee is. And yeah, to be honest, true. like I've I've talked to, you know, I've talked to people at Simon & Schuster. I've talked to people at 3M, Baker & Taylor, Overdrive, mm -hmm. Penguin. And then I've even gone so far as to contact the head of circulations at like the New York Public Library, Queens mm -hmm. Library, Broken Library, where all these publishing companies, those were the first three libraries that yeah. they did pilot projects with. Nobody would tell me how much the affiliate fees are. Right. And it's like, why do you keep these things such a <laughs> secret? You know? Yeah. yeah. And that's funny. The whole industry does. I mean, the entire industry for what whatever reason does not want to talk figures and money and you know, I don't know why I mean there are companies who are going with complete transparency and full disclosure and then there's others that want to keep it guarded like the Fort Knox gold you know for some reason yeah and I think it's it's more of a tradition I think it's more of something that they've always done they've always and I'm and you know, certainly someday years ago it, it stemmed from some incident I would hope that there was a logical reason why they do that but they do and um, and that's probably just part of their agreements that you don't talk about this one thing that might actually be taking place, I'm completely speculating here, is that the affiliate agreements are different for different libraries. So a library that has more patrons and sells more books might be making more money than a small town library that sells two books a month. Yeah. And truthfully, I have no problem with that. If you're out there promoting the books and your patrons are on board with supporting, sure, I'd love to see you get more of it than some library that just slaps it up on its website and doesn't really promote your brand. Yeah, you would have so. to figure that the New York Public Library, which gets, you know, they have, they're big. They're like probably right. one of the biggest <laughs> libraries like in the world in terms of user population, the amount of books, the amount of funding that they get. You would figure that they would probably get a sweeter deal. Right. And that could be. And, it, and there could be levels, tiered levels where it's based on patronage or something. I don't, I'm not in on the agreements there. Yeah. I could see those agreements in place and I can agree with them. I can, I can, I would sleep at night fine with that. Um, one of those things that we were just talking about was direct to consumer and that came up a lot. You know, last year at DBW, we saw a lot of companies exhibiting who were working on getting publishers to create these branded dashboards, these websites where consumers would go buy their books directly from Penguin or Simon & Schuster or you know, Red Adept Publishing, another small company I love. Um, that didn't take off because first of all, we're lucky these days if people actually walk into a bookstore and know the title and author. And I don't mean to imply that readers are stupid. I'm just saying with so much content out there, we might hear about a book and go, oh, you know, the one with the guy with the shoes on the cover, you know, and then the bookstore staff has to help me find my book. You're not going to get them to go, oh, I need the latest book by Hugh Howie published by Simon & Schuster, you know. That's too much to ask. And so consumers didn't jump on that. They did not decide, I'm going to go directly to every different publisher to buy my books. I like getting them from Amazon or Barnes & Noble or whomever, whomever and going this one-stop shopping. 
So last year, with all the focus on on publisher branded websites, that kind of fizzled, I think. This year, talking about direct to consumer, though, they were talking about doing it in different ways through things like social media traffic, incorporating these affiliate sales and things from other book discovery platforms and things like that. So kind of skirting the retailer in some way and rewarding the people who share news about the book whether it's through a blog post, a, a platform or something. So, Book reviews, you know. Right, exactly. And so that will be very interesting to see if any of that actually takes off. Again, there was no targeted effort to say, don't sell your books through Amazon, let's sell them ourselves. Um, but I think publishers are looking for a way to avoid Amazon and other retailers. Um, and not saying, you know, of course, we, we do get into the Amazon bashing at a lot of these events. But they want to cut out the middlemen. They do. And that, first of all, that is smart business. So I can, I can give them, you know, their understanding for that. I think they're also looking around and seeing bookstores closing, even in Barnes & Noble, closing bookstores and losing, losing you know, market share and things like that. And so it may not just be an attempt to avoid the bookstores. It may be an attempt to say, you know, we better have another plan in place besides just relying on these people to sell our books on bookshelves. Well, yeah, I mean, the second largest bookstore in Germany just filed for insolvency, which is about the same thing as filing uh, for bankruptcy. And, you know, they employ 6,800 people. They have like Mm -hmm. over 100 locations and it's it's gone. You know, the people just went into the, you know, it had a complex ownership group, mainly through uh, the church. And right. um, they were just disappointed that the bookstores put such an emphasis on Fifty Shades of Grey and <laughs> Sylvia Day books and, right. you know, erotica and sex sells. I mean, we all know yes. that. But like right. the church ownership group, it really splintered them because it's like, you know, this is the best selling book of all time. But what is this book about? What's the morality mm-hmm. behind this? And, you know, they that was one of the factors that decided them to pull the plug. So, I mean, if mm-hmm. the second major bookstore in Germany could go under just like that, that does not bode well for like the book industry as a whole. Exactly. If you look at that as, you know, sort of uh, the second example of the borders fiasco where, mm-hmm. you know, all of a sudden just the like this light switch gets turned off. You know, 10,000 people are without a job. You know, um, there's one big national chain is just gone and there's really no one to take their place. And that really hurts the overall publishing industry because it's one less sales outlet. And let's be honest, digital still does not account for very much of uh, book sales. Um, Mm -hmm. Most publishers globally, like Penguin and Simon & Schuster, uh, HarperCollins, they all say about 21 to about 24% of their global revenue stems from eBooks. But, you know, that's still a very large percentage of the traditional bookstore that they depend on to make sales. And if these bookstores are going under, that's, that's got to hurt them. And, you know, they have to start thinking about these alternative models because what do you have left when almost everything else is closing or going out of business? Exactly. And like I said, you're, you're sticking your head in the sand if you don't have a plan in place to sell books in a way that does not involve here in America, the number two bookstore chain, we could lose ours, you know, if, if all the gloom and doom predictions are true. And so you, know, you have to have some backup plan to get those books in front of consumers. Let's talk about Amazon bashing. 
Okay. <laughs> you know, sure. uh, we, we both go to a lot of these, you know, uh, yeah. book and publishing conferences. Uh, Goody Reader is the, the normal sponsor of the IDPF at, at Book Expo America, which is one of the mm -hmm. largest digital publishing conferences. And I believe this day, or sorry, this year is going to be two two days instead of just it one is. day. It is. Yeah. So. I mean, it's gotten that big that we have to devote an entire day, an additional day to it. So that'll be exciting. It I've is. always enjoyed the IDPF conference because in the past, at least, it has been very non-platform. It's very much just the news and the data that we need to, to keep a digital publishing revolution going. And so I've always enjoyed that one. So I'm looking forward to having two days of information. I agree. But if there's one sort of theme between all these conferences, whether it's Future Book in London or whether it's like that digital conference before the Frankfurt Book Fair, it seems as though you would it's always easy to find at least one or two sessions devoted to hating on Amazon. Absolutely. And this year we had basically the whole morning on the second day of the conference <laughs> devoted to these things. And truthfully, to be fair, I love Amazon. I'm a huge Amazon customer. But there were some eye-opening pieces of information. Like what? Some of the things. Well, for example, uh, the article we posted uh, shortly after the conference about Amazon's move into academic publishing. Um, not so much the publishing, but the academic book selling. And one of the things that came to light was that a lot of academic libraries are not aware that they think they're buying their books from Amazon Amazon's turning around and buying them from Baker and Taylor. Uh. And so when the box with the smiley face shows up on the side, you know, then the public, the, the libraries are stating, well, we've stopped using Baker and Taylor. We're buying our books from Amazon now. Well, Amazon's buying the book too. And so basically once the libraries get very comfortable thinking that Amazon is the person in charge of their, their book delivery, then that can actually hurt some of the companies that have been up until now providing this content to academic libraries. So, um, so like I said, a lot of interesting information in there. Um, we d did see a lot of discussion about how we don't want to go down that road again. Um, there was a lot of talk. I love the, the, the presentation by Brad Stone, who was the author of The Everything Store. He that was sat a great down book. It was. Well, he sat down with me and talked to me after his presentation about some of the practices that he saw taking place at Amazon. And so um, I particularly loved his anecdote about the cheetah and the gazelle and so there was apparently a tongue-in-cheek remark it was not meant to be taken seriously according to some sources that jeff bezos had said we need to go after the publishers like a cheetah goes after a sickly gazelle and according nice. to right according to stone in fact it became an inside joke within the company and that they actually named their negotiations project when they were deciding how they were going to handle negotiations the Gazelle Project. That's awesome. And, and that Amazon's lawyers quickly shut that down and said, you're not calling it that. Um, this is all great information in his book, The Everything Store. But he had a lot of eye-opening things to say. And he openly says, I'm an Amazon customer. I'm." He calls himself a Bezosologist, so studying Jeff Bezos. He did call his one-star review from Mackenzie Bezos, uh, Jeff's wife. That was actually hilarious. Though. I like, know. He um, called it the review heard around the world. <laughs> so. You know, and I think like, almost every major news organization actually picked up. It was one of the few situations where a negative review actually made national headlines. I know. Isn't that awesome? Uh, and he, he laughed it off. He was, you know, he said, you know, she's entitled to her opinion about it. But anyway, um, but he, he did a lot of talking about, you know, 
how they become the everything store, what they did. He did a lot of talk about horizontals and verticals, where they move into one line of traffic, for example, starting with books and then moving on to Kindles and then on to eBooks. But then they move horizontally into groceries and fashion and video. Now Amazon's producing its own content. So not just selling videos and streaming videos, they're producing content for video. You know, and so he basically talks about how they spread up and sideways at the same time until they are larger than life. And basically said Amazon does not do anything small and they do not do it without confidence. And so that's what makes them great. They don't sit back and wait to see what the rest of the industry is going to do with this before deciding to act. They take risks and that's what's going to make them big. And they put that same focus that made them great in book selling in all the other aspects of their business. So there was a lot of talk about what would it take to compete with them. And one thing that Good E-Reader has talked about a lot is why are you competing? You can't. You cannot compete with these people, so stop trying. Do something different. I sat down in Frankfurt in October with one of the vice presidents from Barnes & Noble and said, all you have to do to compete is to get authors to pull their books out of KDP Select by putting their books in your physical stores. Indie authors cannot put their books easily in a physical bookstore. All you have to do is launch a program where we can and they're going to pull those books out of KDP Select. They'll even pay you for the process. They haven't moved on that idea. <laughs> so yeah. Amazon jumps on things and tries new things. And unfortunately, other companies sit back and wait to see how the rest of the industry is going to respond first. And that's what makes them Amazon. Yeah, I mean, they're the force to beat, but I think it's because they genuinely love books, you know? Mm-hmm. And it, it's hard to compete a company that, like, generally loves what they're doing. And, mm-hmm. you know, reading that book, you really it really makes it clear that, like, they've made their fortune selling books, you know? And, and that's what they're all about. And I can't really see... I see a lot of dollar signs in people's eyes when they tell me about their new startup idea and you know they're they're creating an ebook subscription service or they're creating an ebook discovery site it's just all about the dollar signs it's not about like the love of reading and you actually wrote a very interesting article about pew research and people's mm-hmm. reading habits and trends and from reading it it really doesn't seem like a lot of people are even reading books these days I think we discovered that it said the average was five books per year, but that only 76% of American adults claim to have read a book this year, which I gotta say, I'm sorry, is higher than I would have guessed if you just asked me to pick a number. But, um, but yeah, it's not, why isn't it a hundred, you know? Um, of course that was the people who did respond. That was a group of survey respondents. So it's not entirely a, a, you know, a comprehensive picture, but it was very interesting that, so many of them did not read more than one. Um, so I, I would love to see a comparison to, to is that increased over previous years. I personally feel like there's so much more traffic and knowledge and awareness of books now thanks to e-reading and to apps and such. And so I think more than since the dig- digital revolution began, I think we're seeing a, an increase in general reading behavior um, as opposed to you know, before it was so easy to find and buy and read a book. So it'd be, it'd be interesting to see more numbers on that. Okay, so wrap up from DBW. We've talked about a lot of things, major trends. Um, 
what's left? I mean, now that you've sort of come and gone from DBW, uh, the landscape for conferences is pretty dry for the next little while. Uh, the ALA Midwinter Conference is at the end of the month, but... Um, mm -hmm. It doesn't really seem like a lot of people are attending. It seems as though a lot of people are going to be going to the annual conference in Vegas and, you know, Book <laughs> Expo America in the summertime. Where do you think the publishing industry is going, like, in the next three or four months? Well, one of my favorite discussions from the entire DBW, the one that really made me sit up, take notice, and start writing stuff down, had to do with the authors themselves. So this whole conference talks about publishing and producing a book. There, there's typically not a lot of discussion of the authors themselves and of course very little aimed at self-publishing because this is really an industry conference this is really for the traditional industry so i, I don't fault them for not having more self-publishing news um but there was a study the uh, digital book world organization and writers digest magazine polled nine thousand authors and this was an, a very amazingly interesting study that they, they gave the results to the full study is available from DBW, but they hit the highlights for us. First, they broke the authors into four categories, aspiring author, self-published, traditionally published, and hybrid published. And so we, we had our four categories of authors there, and the news was amazing. We actually have an article posted on goodyreader.com right now, so if anyone searches for it, it's actually called DBW Writer's Digest Survey on Author Satisfaction. And that right there was the first term that jumped out at me, was how happy are authors with the publishing industry. And it turns out the numbers are not exactly what you might think they were. First, 87% of self-published authors make less than $1,000 a year off the sales of their books. But 54% of traditionally published authors also make less than $1,000 a year. And uh, that was a very interesting t statistic. Um, less than a third of traditionally published authors said they were happy with their book cover. And so we're seeing a lot of authors saying, you know, I don't like this lack of control. Uh, it was very interesting. One of the more interesting statistics was that authors who were self-published and traditionally published both tended to agree, majority agreed, that a self-published book and a traditionally published book were of the same quality, both in terms of print and the contents. And so right there, we've got traditionally published authors saying a self-published book is not worse than mine. And mine is not better than theirs. The really fun news from all of that was that buzzword hybrid author. The hybrid authors have seen both sides. They've seen the good, the bad, the ugly. They know what the publishing industry is like. They know what self-publishing is like. They make more money than either type of author. They spend more time per week writing. They have more books published by about four to one. So they seem to be the happiest people of all. And it was actually speculated that it's possible they started with the traditional industry and said, I don't need this and moved on into self-publishing and are actually happier with their results. And at one point, a speaker who followed up on that study said to the audience, what is that telling you and how you treat your authors? You publishers need to reevaluate your contracts with your authors. And she wasn't referring to the actual tangible money contract of the book. She meant your social contract. How are you treating these people? Are you using them up and spitting them out to get a best-selling book out of one of them? Or are you developing a lifelong relationship where your author feels valued and his content is actually put out there for people to enjoy <laughs> for years to come? 
Well, and that's kind really, of like a very naive way of looking at it. It I mean, was interesting. If, <laughs> if you're, okay, so I look at it as like if I was an agent that, mm -hmm. you know, on a weekly basis, I'm maybe getting about 10 to 20 unsolicited manuscripts. Um, oh, easily. <laughs> you know, yeah, I mean, right. we, we all know eight literary agents. They get right. as much as they don't even want unsolicited <laughs> stuff, they'll get it. And, yes. you know, they're weeding through all this stuff. And I could just see that a few years after doing that, you're you're just so jaded, you know, you're just like, you know, I've, uh, you know, I've signed like, you know, 10 of like 10,000, you know, authors, none of them have like, you know, sold more than a thousand books. Mm -hmm. And it's just like, God, what do I got to do to get ahead? You know, and I can right. just see myself being pissed off because of my lack of success of an agent, their lack of success of like, uh, you know, of writing prowess. And, you know, a lot of these contests make sense from that point of view. Remember um, Wattpad and mm -hmm. um, National Novel Writing Month? A lot yeah. of like the authors that actually won those or placed well actually got signed deals by like Harlequin and things like that because right. it was almost like a crowdsourced effort as in people all mm -hmm. agreeing that this book is good. I will tell you one of the sh most shocking things I heard and I've already said I love Dominique Rocca. She is a little spitfire. Um, but she's, she's not going to pull any punches. She knows her business. She knows her stuff. She educates herself. Um, she happened, by the way, to mention, you know, I think it was like six in the morning. She tweeted or retweeted an article we wrote about them. And, and I asked her that day, I was like, what are you doing on Twitter? Retweeting at 6 a.m. <laughs> she's like, well, I started reading at 4.30 and I came across your article at 6. I mean, nice. she is Right. She's absolutely knows her stuff. Um, she's up on the stage with Tim O'Reilly and, and David Nussbaum and, and someone else. And, um, I'm sorry, Carolyn Reedy from Simon & Schuster. Oh, a bunch and, of nobodies, right? Oh, exactly. Nobodies. <laughs> um, well, David Nussbaum made the point, and truthfully, you have to understand what F&W Media does. They have very niche markets for publishing. These are not mainstream trade fiction. They're not publishing the next Sylvia Day book. You know, so they have very small markets. And he actually said, we don't work with authors who don't come to us with an established fan base. And like this, he, mean, he meant like, you know, an author presence or a social media following. Right. And she turned to him and said, then why do they need publishers? <laughs> you know, and I thought, wow, she's going to say what she thinks. But it was very telling of the industry. We're seeing publishers and agents now going to places like Wattpad and, and looking on social media and stuff and seeing which authors already have a fan base because it's getting so difficult to sign a debut author and make that person into a bestseller. Totally. And I remember Hugh Howey told me this back last year at, at Book Expo. He said, you know, when, when people started shopping around trying to get him to sell them the rights to wool, you know, this book that was doing phenomenally well, 50000 a month, you know, at one point for the wool saga, um, when it was just a self-published ebook, And he said, he t I think it was to Random House, maybe, he said, how much are you going to pay me to tell people you published my book? You know, yeah. and that was chilling. I mean, it's like, I don't need you. You know, if you're going to bring me an offer, it better be good. You know, you know and, and that makes sense because I actually read an article from um, like a, a startup incubator. And mm -hmm. they actually said that 10 million users is the new 1 million users. Right. Like if you if you don't have a product that doesn't have at least 10 million people using it, we're not going to look at you. Whereas like two years ago, it was like 1 million, you know, it was good. Yeah. Now, you know, 10 million is the new 1 million. And it's, it's the same with like authors where 
there's just so much stuff out there that right. how do you weed through the good from the bad? It's it's almost like impossible even for an entire team of people writing manuscripts that you're better off just like gaining intelligence on like, you know, what self-published authors have these large followings and aren't actually signed? Let's just go target them. I mean, to me, that that's that's good business. You know, it's, it, it is right. You're, you're looking at far less investment. You're looking at people who bring an established fan base. But in some ways, you're going to have to sweeten the pot because if they've already got their 10 million followers, why do they need you? Like Dominique said, you know, we wrote yesterday about Sylvia Day's latest multi-million dollar book deal. She has had, right, she's had several, again, somebody we've never heard of. Um, She's had several of these deals. And, you know, I was discussing it with an author. Um, It's not that she's shopping around to publishers to get more money. She's getting, she's got the clout behind it. She yeah. can take your zeros and dollar signs or leave it. She's got her money. Now she has the power to say, oh no, sir, this is a four book deal. This is the cover I want. This is how you're going to market it. You know, she's able to do that. And I think that's what authors have been missing. She doesn't need your money. She can do that on her own. She and she's not money hungry either. I met, no. I, I actually met her and right. chilled out with her for about an hour at BA last year. And, mm-hmm. and like, she was surprisingly grounded, you know, yeah. just like she's married. She has like a few kids. Like she doesn't even, you know, she has a home office. It's like, you know, it's just like, she's surprisingly grounded as Absolutely. like an author. Not a who diva. Makes, <laughs> yeah, well, totally. And I've met a lot of right. author divas and uh, you know, oh, you yeah. were telling me before the show start that like you met like some diva, like publishers even at the Absolutely. event. Absolutely. The ones who are too good to talk to you because we're so-and-so. And then you're going to see which, which publishers have some great sales, which have a huge author following and reader following. And it's the ones who are actually out there, like I said, on Twitter at 4.30 in the morning reading headlines, reading articles from news sites to see what people are saying about the industry. Those are the people who are successful. Because Sounds they're like actually, me. Right. They're actually listening to their readers, not just their authors, not just the industry speculation about what's supposed to be big, not just reading articles that vampires are out. You know, they're actually or online. Or Bigfoot erotica. Exactly. That's my favorite. That, that's erotica. in right now. I Gargoyles, Bigfoot, or Bigfeet. And, yes. uh, you know, so like vampire and werewolf romances that's so like 2011, 2012. Mm-hmm. It's all about just like alien like you know alien romances erotica just like all this like weird stuff like it's basically cartoons you watched as a kid (laughs) but just like make it erotic and it's all good but you know i gotta say i'm I'm gonna love me a vampire for a second because i fully believe self-publishing would not have taken off like it did as quickly if it were not for those vampires here's why because once the vampires kind of came and went the fans were not done with it and neither were the authors And so when those authors were out there publishing and pushing their own content to those fans flying under the radar because the industry was done with them, that's what really got people to say, you know what, I don't care who published this book, I like it. I'm going to buy it, I'm going to pay for it. And so those authors were out there doing that legwork and the fans were supporting them. So basically the readers are tired of being told what the hot new thing is. Yeah, I'll decide what I like to read. So I got to say I love me a vampire too because they turned this industry on its head. The authors and the fans got tired of being told, I'm done with vampires. Well, you know, okay, so I was going to wrap up the show, <laughs> but I think like this is actually kind of interesting because 
it seems as though like our vampires got really big about at the same time as like the Twilight movies came yeah. out and oh, like absolutely. it had been actually some years before Anne Rice you know she stopped writing about vampires you know vampires have always been that type of thing where it's like it's always in cinema always in movies but you don't really read good vampire books and it's like it's it, vampires are like they have that inherent sex charm you know mm-hmm. it's like the intimacy of like sucking someone's blood or making them your thrall and so on so i could really see why that caught on and then you know the whole like werewolf vampire thing well that that just makes sense because you know even if you looked at like old silent cinema or like whatever with like bella lugosi you know Mm -hmm. and like the swamp thing and like the werewolf i mean that that was old stuff i mean you look at how cinema became popular I think it became popular because of all those monsters, you know <laughs> exactly. what I mean? And like, right. and, you know, self-publishing got popular for the exact same thing. Like, you know, 80, 90 years later, it's the same thing. It's like full circle where like vampires and like werewolves and monsters really kind of like made self put self-publishing on the map with like people like, um, you know, Maya Banks and like Sylvia Day and, and, you know, oh, yeah. people. Amanda Hawking. Absolutely. Yeah. And people um, like that. So it's just very interesting and it's only a matter of time before, you know, okay, maybe that stuff's a little stale. What's next? You know, what else could we write about, you know, and just taking all these like mythological things and just writing erotica tales about them. Right. And I'll tell you one of the funnier things, and I hate to sound like I'm disparaging it, but it's funny to me, is the good old fashioned cowboy romance is still alive and well. Those are being written left and right and selling. I mean, because romance fans like them. So basically, like I'm saying, I mean, just because the industry has decided we had a hot new topic does not mean the fans got tired of it. And so I, I really got to think that the fans actually helped push self-publishing even faster than it would have naturally evolved because they were tired of being told, you know, that's not what we're selling this month. And so they've turned back to those same people who were writing the books that they loved before. And they're they're following right in line with what those people are still still enjoying to write. That actually sounds like a good reading. article for the site you should write. About, it does. You know, self-publishing <laughs> being accelerated due to like you know werewolves and vampires. Right. Absolutely. So same old bloodsuckers are, are sparking the digital revolution. Totally. And I know we have to wrap up soon, but I was going to say that was one of the more interesting comments I heard a lot from the CEOs, at least, was that we are just beginning the digital revolution. We are not in the middle of it. It's not fading. Ebook sales are not stagnating. And we are only just beginning to see what's going to be possible with ebooks. That was another major comment made a digital book world this year. And I want to see where it's going to go. Vampires and all. <laughs> All right, we are joined today by Mercy Pilkington, staff writer and senior editor of GoodyReader.com. My name is Michael. If you like the show, drop a comment. If you're listening to the show on iTunes, YouTube, or various other channels, check it out at GoodyReader.com. And Mercy, thanks for uh, attending the show and doing DBW and joining us today. Thanks so much. It's fun to be here. All right, talk to you all after a while.